So this evening, I would like to give a talk on another parami, the parami of metta, of loving-kindness, which is, to me, an interesting inclusion in the list that we would think of developing the heart as a perfection. And what's interesting about the paramis uh, is how they, they really interweave and none of these qualities are separate or distinct in our experience. They, they mutually inform each other. So I think of metta as a generosity of heart. I think of the practice of metta requiring dedication, perseverance, a lot of patience. It informs our ethical, our sila. In a way, it's a truthfulness of the heart. So you can see as we give these talks that these qualities uh, overlap and intermingle in different ways. There's a, a saying that I like very much from the sixth Zen patriarch that goes, awareness is the foundation of kindness, and kindness is the expression of awareness. Awareness is the foundation of kindness, and mindfulness is the foundation of kindness, and kindness is the expression, it's the outflow, it's the manifestation, it's the outpouring of that awake, away, aware life. So, and I'll be talking about how these qualities of mindfulness and kindness intermingle and really mutually support each other in our lives and in our practice. When I think about para the uh, metta as a parami, uh, somebody made the comment in a group today, which I thought was really apropos of this uh, taking metta as a perfection, as, as a parami uh, bhavana practice, and the comment was um, uh, 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 commenting on somebody else's practice, and I think I get the phrase right, where she said, making kindness your first priority. And I like that as a a way of living and having kindness as a centrality in our orientation. What would it be like to make kindness your first priority? And like anything, as you know, with practice, It's like gardening. We're tending the soil, tending the garden of our heart, tending the garden of our mind. And so often when we encounter different qualities uh, in Buddhist teaching, we may think, well, that's got nothing to do with me, or that's way, I'll do that in my next lifetime. You know, it's just, that's that's too challenging. I don't think of myself as a kind person. But as we take a long-term view, we see that these qualities can be developed. As I've looked back at my life and done a lot of meta practice in different ways and see how how it cultivates, how it grows, just like a garden grows, a plant grows. I think of the yogi, the yogini Deepama, who showed up on the steps of a monastery in Burma, completely bereft with grief, and was a a very ardent practitioner and excelled in many qualities and of the practice of mindfulness and metta. And when somebody, I think it was Jack, asked, what, what, what's in your mind, what's in your mind stream most of the time, she said, three things, concentration, peace, and love. Anybody like those three things to be the basis of your mind stream, or the basis of your life? Not a bad way to be. So, and as you know, the world needs this quality in bucket loads. We live in a world where there's a lot of, especially in this country right now, there's a lot of polarization, a lot of adversity, and um, a lot of suffering, 
lot of economic hardship. And what's more needed than anything that I can see looking around, when I look politically or socially or economically, is kindness. Is a basic human warmth and connection and the way we take care of each other, both personally and as a society. And yet there's also a lot of counterforce to that. When I listen to when I'm driving, I'll sometimes listen to AM radio and listen to talk radio, especially when I'm out of the Bay Area, which tends to be a little more progressive talk radio. And I see how much antipathy there is, how much aggression and separation and blame and uh, nastiness, actually, and vindictiveness. It's easy to be mean. There's this New Yorker cartoon where a woman's leaning over to her husband who's taking, trying to take a nap in his armchair. She says, it was only the one Nobel Prize that you won, dear, wasn't it? So the good news about um, so much of this practice, whether it's mindfulness or metta or compassion, wakefulness, is we have these qualities within us. They're not alien, they're not separate. We don't find them somewhere outside of ourselves. We all have this capacity to be kind. And I would say we have a lot of capacity for kindness. We don't necessarily notice it. We don't notice the ordinary day-to-day ways that we express kind, consideration, care, warmth. But if you think about how we move about in our day, or just, just being here on the retreat, and all the myriad kindnesses that you receive by being here. I, every time I go to the dining room, I think about the kindnesses of the staff. Yes, it's just a, you could say it's just a job, and they're doing their job, but I can see the way they do it, that there's a certain sweetness to it. They care about you and your breakfast. What about that? They don't even know you. So it's, I like to look through the lens of seeing how, how manifest this quality is, and just in the day, in little things that you do for each other here. It's almost like we can't stop ourselves from being kind. There's a cartoon, um, there's somebody consoling Santa, and um, Santa's saying, I just want to deliver goodness, but the world keeps asking me to keep bringing this junk. <laughs> So I came across this story today, which I found very touching and um, really expresses this very simple, ordinary kindness that comes so often through our lives, usually when we're not expecting it. It's quite long, so settle in, get comfortable. 20 years ago, I drove a cab for a living. One night I took a fare at 2.30 a.m. When I arrived to collect, the building was dark except for a single light in a ground floor window. So I walked to the door and knocked. Just a minute, answered a frail elderly voice. I could hear something being dragged across the floor. After a long pause, the door opened. A small small woman in her 80s stood before me. She was wearing a print dress and a pillbox hat with a veil pinned on it, like somebody out of a 1940s movie. By her side was a small nylon suitcase. The apartment looked as if no one had lived in it for years. All the furniture was covered with sheets. Would you carry my bag out to the car, she said. I took the suitcase to the cab, then returned to assist the woman. She took my arm and we walked towards, slowly towards the cab. She kept thanking me for my kindness. It's nothing, I told her. I just t- tried to treat my passengers the way I'd want my mother treated. When we got in the cab, she gave me an address and then asked, Could you drive through downtown? It's not the shortest way, I answered quickly. Oh, I don't mind, she said. I'm in no hurry. I'm on my way to hospice. I looked in the rearview mirror. Her eyes were glistening. I don't have any family left, she continued. 
The doctor says I don't have very long. I quietly reached over and shut off the meter. What route would you like me to take, I asked. For the next two hours, we drove through the city. She showed me the building where she had once worked as an elevator operator. We drove through the neighborhood where she and her husband had lived when they were newlyweds. She had me pull up in front of a furniture warehouse that had once been a ballroom, where she had gone dancing as a girl. Sometimes she asked me to slow, to slow down in front of a particular building or corner, and would sit staring into the darkness, saying nothing. First hint of sun was creasing the horizon. She suddenly said, I'm tired, let's go now. We drove in silence to the address she had given me. Two orderlies came out to the cab as soon as we pulled up, opened the trunk, and took the small suitcase to the door. The woman was already seated in the wheelchair. How much do I owe you, she asked, reaching for into her purse. Nothing, I said. Oh, but you have to make a living, she answered. Oh, there were other passengers, I responded. Almost without thinking, I bent and gave her a hug. She held on to me tightly. Our hug ended with her remark. You gave an old woman a little moment of joy. After a slight pause, she added, Thank you. I squeezed her hand and then walked into the dim morning light. Behind me, a door shut. It was the sound of closing of a life. I didn't pick up any more passengers that shift. I drove aimlessly lost in thought. For the rest of the day, I could hardly talk. What if that woman had gotten an angry driver, one who was impatient to end his shift? What if I'd refused to take the run, or had honked once, then driven away? On a quick review, I don't think I have done anything more important in my life. We're conditioned to think that our lives revolve around great moments, but great moments often catch us unaware, beautifully wrapped in what others may consider a small one. So notice how you feel as you listen to that story. It's a very beautiful story, very touching, and a very simple expression of kindness in a way that didn't even require thought. It was just the natural inclination of the heart. I've been um, connected with an organization called Service Space. Anybody familiar with that organization? Wonderful um, organization that, that has as its mission statement kindness, kindness and generosity. And so there's, there's lots of sharing of stories about different people's uh, practice of kindness. There's a, there's a story about a school who had, uh, a class, uh, I think a sixth grade class, had um, taken as, as, a, as an elective uh, class to practice random acts of kindness. So in the school, they're always up to a little mischief, doing little kind things. They would leave little notes, you know, be kind to someone today and slip on the teacher's desk and write poems and leave them in people's lockers and in the park and uh, pick up trash and just doing very simple things uh, that expressed, again, this, this simple heart. And one of the kids said, I learned that the kindness is a chain reaction, that it doesn't stop with me, doesn't start with the person I give to, but it, it, it multiplies and, and generates. And another child said, it doesn't make a difference how small or big the act of kindness is. It, no, it makes no difference. In the end, the acts of kindness are all the same size because they all make somebody smile. And in other stories, um, some of these, some were known and others, a couple of businessmen who were in first class decide to give up their seats and exchange their seats for someone in cattle class. Um, and so they walk back and they just look for two people who they think will you know, be appreciative of getting an upgrade. And, and so they choose this young couple and they, the couple's really excited and happy and they go off to first class. And, and the woman sitting beside them said, what's up with that? Like, why would you give up a nice comfy seat to sit back here in cattle class? And, uh, and they said, well, we, we just, it, the pleasure was making somebody smile. You know, it's that simple. Another story of a woman who, um, in, in this organization, they, they have this thing called pay it forward. Um, 
and uh, you know the different ways that we can pay it forward. You know, often it's done at the toll um, or in a restaurant. You pay for somebody's bill, and then so you, you ask the waitress instead of taking the bill, you take you give them a little smile card. And then, so this one woman chose to do it and she was out with her family at a pancake place and she saw a man uh, look kind of lonely in the corner, so she paid for his bill and, and then the waitress came back and said, oh, he was so touched by that that he paid for somebody else's bill. And then about nine different tables got their, their bill paid for as it went around the restaurant. So it's contagious, there's a, there's a chain reaction. So take a moment to think about uh, someone uh, who for you embodies this quality of kindness or, or call to mind some act, some, some moment when you were touched by someone's kindness. And again, just sense into what you notice in, you, in your body, in your heart, as you call that person to mind. How you feel, how it touches you. I think it's one of the reasons why the Dalai Lama is so infinitely, universally popular because of his kind heart. You know, he talks about his practice being kindness, his religion being kindness. And it's, and it's contagious. You can't help but feeling a sense of levity and humanness around him. And I've also been around teachers um, who had great wisdom, but didn't seem to embody this quality of kindness, of care. They seemed very cold in a certain way with their wisdom. And I noticed how put off I was by that. And there, were my, there, and there are other teachers I know who actually don't, don't have a lot of mental clarity, but exude tremendous heartfulness. And I find myself drawn to that, drawn to that very human dignity. So the Buddha, of course, as we know, gave a lot of emphasis to heart qualities to the Brahma-viharas, kindness, compassion, joy, equanimity, generosity, I think of as a Brahma-vihara in its own way. So why did, why, why did the Buddha t- talk so much about these qualities? When he's also known as, as the teacher of suffering and the end of suffering, as a wisdom teacher, as a liberation teacher, The Buddha was concerned about our self-created suffering, the ways that we trip ourselves up with our own confusion, animosity, greed, etc. And he also understood that these qualities of the heart bring great happiness, bring contentment, bring peace, bring joy, bring connection. Try staying miserable while you're giving somebody flowers, you know, or doing something for somebody. It doesn't work. It transforms the mind state. And the Buddha was concerned about transforming the mind state so it orients towards grooves of well-being, of contentment, of happiness, of peace. When we engage with the heart in ways of kindness and care and generosity, the heart blooms. There was a studies done on... Um, various Tibetan practitioners, Matthew Ricard and Mingyur Rinpoche and a bunch of others. And um, I remember reading when the, some of those results came out and uh, the scientists were, were stunned because they'd never seen uh, such high levels of happiness 
in, 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 in all of the time that they've been researching happiness. And um, the practices that they were doing when they were, when, when those levels of, when those measurements of happiness were recorded were when they were practicing matter and compassion. So they, you know, those, those, when, we, when we're cultivating kindness and care and love, it lights up the same areas in the, in the frontal lobes as when we're feeling happy. And they're related. These qualities of kindness also makes us more functional. Sometimes kindness is given this sense of and has a rap of being weak or wimpy or doesn't make somebody very effective in the world. You've got to be really strong and mental and assertive and aggressive. And um, I was reading a study about leadership. Uh, a couple of leadership scholars were trying to understand some of the key components to what makes successful leaders. Of course, there's many different perspectives on this, but this particular um, uh, study that was really reviewing a lot of different studies uh, was studying the effectiveness of managers at work. And they, they, they concluded there was only one factor that significantly differentiated the top 25 managers versus the bottom 25, 25% of managers. And that quality was affection. The highest performing managers show more warmth and fondness and get closer to people and are more open in sharing thoughts and feelings than those who weren't such successful managers. So very interesting to see how that actually makes us more effective leaders. And I've, I've read other similar studies. So here, when we're mostly cultivating awareness, cultivating mindful attention, maybe you can begin to see the relationship between the heart and mindfulness. How as we get quieter, get more open, get more sensitive, get more clear, we also feel more connected, we're more tuned as we attune to our body and our sensations and our feelings and just become more subtle, more subtly aware of the subtle body. And we also become aware that doesn't just stay here. We also become aware of the environment, of others. We become more attuned. We become more easily touched. I know several people talked about the experience of watching the fox today and uh, waiting to, you know, pounce on the mouse hole and um, and I always find those, those, those experiences interesting because we may be riveted by the fox because we don't see foxes so often in beautiful colors and the fur. But then the heart is also thinking, well, what about the mouse? But I don't want the fox to go hungry, but I want the cute little field mouse to also be, stay healthy and happy. The heart, and so we, we, the heart naturally starts to be more sensitive and more caring because we're more awake to life. This is from Mary Oliver. She says, There's nothing in this world, if I can pay attention to it long enough, that doesn't cease to foster wonder and with wonder love, if there is anything I haven't found it yet. There's nothing in this world that doesn't cease, when I pay attention to it long enough, doesn't cease to foster wonder and with wonder love. So I've told this story a bunch, but I, I, I'll tell it again because there's, a, there's a, a different version of it, which is, um, you know, we had these swallows at Spirit Rock that come nesting every year, and I was just teaching a creativity retreat with Anne and Anna and they came back and they built a new nest or trying to build a new nest and um, right above the teacher room where we go in and out and and at nighttime they don't they usually fly away when we come near but at nighttime they just they just stay around and they're just in a beautiful indigo coat and wings and they're sort of shivering a little bit and they just stay there and it's just the heart just 
you know, blooms with that with a sense of care and love. So I will say a little more, uh, some things more specifically about the meta practice itself. I've been talking about meta as kindness. We can talk about meta as friendliness. We can talk about meta as loving kindness. We can talk about it in many different ways. Um, but I think I, I, I'm using the word kindness these days because it's a way that we can experience it or get to know that quality in a much more ordinary way. So metta, as it's defined in the tradition, is, is, comes from the word, the root word maitri, which means uh, friendship. So, so metta is a quality of friendliness. It's a friendliness towards ourselves, friendliness towards each other. It's a spirit of warmth and affection, kindness, care. And the specific thing that distinguishes metta from love or romantic love is that it's unconditional, unbound. It's unneeding uh, of anything in return. So it's, it's, it's freely given, it's freely offered, it's freely shared, which makes it more of a rare quality. Because usually when we're giving and sharing our love, as much as we like to think that it's offered freely, we usually want something in return, some acknowledgement, some reciprocity, something, some thank you. And I'd like to think of metta also as an attitude. And this is how we can bring this into our practice moment by moment. It's an attitude in the way that we meet the moment. How do we orient towards the moment? Do we orient with, in, in, with awareness? Do we orient with kindness? Do we orient with impatience? Do we orient with resistance? Do we orient with rejection? So you can ask yourself moment by moment, how, 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 what's the attitude, what's the quality? And is it, is it infused in any way with metta, with, with kindness? What I've appreciated about the metta practice and the Buddhist teaching on metta is the, the practical nature of it as a practice that we can grow the heart of love. I grew up Catholic where I was told to love because I was a good Catholic boy and we're supposed to be loving and I'm supposed to love my neighbors and I didn't like my neighbors and so I was confused how that works, how, you know, how I was supposed to suddenly just be loving when I didn't feel it and I wasn't told how to do it. So I really appreciated this practice, the, the intentional practice of metta, where we systematically develop a sense of care and kindness towards ourselves, towards others, towards people we find difficult, towards people we don't even know. And it's also a purification practice in that when we cultivate it, when we develop it systematically, as I'm sure many of you know, it also brings up its obstacles. We encounter what gets in the way. Do you know what gets in the way of your heart loving boundlessly? If you do it, that's a good thing. If you don't, take a look. What gets in the way of you just feeling complete, unconditional love for everybody here in the room? What, 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 what causes us to close down? You know, maybe it's competition, we're comparing, we're fearful, there's some lack of trust, or we just don't know them, or who knows, many different reasons why why. Uh, Maybe because we're just feeling so zombied out because of being at 9,000 feet and we can't think straight. Maybe that's an obstacle. So to get to know what is in the way, Rumi says, your task is not to seek for love, but merely to seek and find all the barriers within yourself that you have built against it. Task is not to seek for love, but merely to seek and find all the barriers within yourself that you have built against it. And that also means the barriers that we built to receive kindness from others. Also part of the meta practice. How are we able to give people a chance to, to practice by receiving? So we start with ourselves, as so often with the practice. 
we start exploring our relationship of kindness to ourselves. And as we are all too familiar that this is not the easiest place, maybe it was easy 2,600 years ago in rural India, but it doesn't seem to be so easy for most people I know to unconditionally accept themselves and to be appreciative and to be kind and loving. So we practice. We look at the ways that we're hard on ourselves. We look at the ways that we're judgmental. We look at the ways that we reject ourselves. Rilke puts it this way, I want to unfold. Let no place in me hold itself closed. For where I am closed, I am false. So one of the ways I, I orient to this is of thinking about it in terms of opening, us, opening, to, us, opening to our humanness. Opening to our humanness to all of our foibles, all of our imperfections. Never mind perfections, how about our imperfections? <laughs> Starting with our body. How do we bring kindness to this bag of bones and skin, or whatever shape or form it's in? So many ways that we can feel our humanness. You know, just meditate for 10 minutes and you'll feel your humanness, the crazy mind, you know, the agitated body, the restlessness. How do we bring a kind, accepting attention to that? A patience, a care. So life is always presenting different ways that, that are challenging. You know, whether it's our health or our life circumstances, the way we beat up on ourselves. There's a poem, the end of a poem by Ryokan where he says, last year a foolish monk, this year no change. You know, that's, maybe that's how you're feeling in this retreat. Wow, I've practiced for, I don't know, 18 months and I'm not seeing a lot of difference. <laughs> Oops. Was, was there money back guarantee as part of this retreat? I don't know. Yeah, change happens slowly. Can we, can we accept ourselves as we are? And we're not about perfecting ourselves, we're just looking at our relationship, transforming our relationship to what we see, to what we hold, to what we feel, what we know. This is a part of a poem uh, that I wrote that speaks a little to this. It's called, Your Only Duty. Duty. Your only duty is not to run, even if the hole of loss burns deep in your belly, and on waking you feel the dread of walking into the day, stripped bare, as wind pierces empty cabins within. You can always pretend, try putting on a face other than your own. But that's a game that's never worked and only burns a deeper hole inside the pocket of longing and makes the shell you've chosen to live in even more hollow. There are times when there's no choice but to turn towards where you are and to touch the hungry infants inside you've spent a lifetime running from. With delicate hands of love, the way the evening fog envelops the solitary tree, without flinching, pressing into and loving every gnarled crevice, every twisted branch, even the forgotten needles fall into the ground. This is the first step that begins the slow journey of completeness, keeps inviting you deeper into the roots of yourself, claiming your place that has always been waiting, that is right here. So, then, so this again, where the practices come together, mindfulness and the matter, we turn towards us, we, towards ourselves, towards where we are. And then we extend this, we, are, we, we return the gift, we, we extend this, this heartfulness to others. 
is a line that I carry around a lot in my mind. Uh, I don't know the source of it, and the, the line is, be kind to every person and every creature that you meet, because each person has been asked to carry a great burden. And there's nobody here that I know of that doesn't have a great burden. We don't get through life without having our, our bag of burdens, one or many. And so I remember that as I'm moving about the world and dealing with friends or conflicts. Oh yeah, this person too. This person like me wants to be happy. This person also is dealing with the vulnerability of being a human being in a body. And again, through the practice of awareness, through the practice of mindfulness, that itself is the building block for the practice of the quality of empathy. We know another's experience by knowing our own experience intimately by sensing our own body, our own, our own vulnerability, our own humanness and fragility, is how we know and touch another's. So this work that we're doing can often seem very navel-gazing and insular, but actually it, it creates a tremendous sensitivity and connectedness. And so as we meet the difficulties in ourselves, we meet the struggles in ourselves, we, we get tenderized in this practice. Anybody feeling tenderized? When you come over to it, it's like a tenderizing machine. Yeah? We open to, the, to just the flaws and foibles and vulnerabilities and body stuff, mind stuff, stuff from the past. And we hang there in the fire. And if we can hang in, in with it, 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 it changes us, it, it softens us, it opens us. And we have more understanding, more sympathy, more empathy. I know when I work with students and I work with clients in my private practice, I know when, when I've done my work uh, and I can be with that person with exactly where they are and not flinch, because I've, I've learned how to not flinch in myself. And then there'll be other times when someone comes in with something and I find it's harder to bear because I found it harder to bear in myself. It's the same with friends, same with any situation. So the more we do our work, the more openness there is, the more capacity. We become fearless. Trungpa called it the tender heart of a warrior. Courageous heart that knows no fear because we've, we become fearless in opening to every place in ourselves. Part of the poem from Naomi Shihab Nye, which we read a lot, and I, I will read it again because I think it's very apropos, where she says, Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing and then it's only kindness that makes sense anymore. Before you know kindness, you want to know sorrow. You know the, the challenge of being in this human life. And then there's tenderness, there's compassion. So lastly, just want to say something about, since this, this retreat is oriented towards how we are in you know, shifting from this course into our lives, into our, into our work, into our yoga teaching, into our whatever work that we do, um, to, uh, to reflect on how our practice of kindness moves in our life, in our asana practice, in our teaching, how we move in the world with a kind heart. And as we know, the world is crying out for kind human beings. There's a lot of suffering in this world. I was just reading some stats that I was unfamiliar with. There's 65 million Americans who uh, one family member serves as a caregiver for someone who's chronically ill in the family. 15% of households face daily risk of hunger in this country. And the suicide rates for veterans in 2010, which I imagine is mostly the same, they don't have the data for 2011, there was 120 uh, veterans per week committing suicide. 
So a tremendous amount of suffering on every level, every scale. And so this practice asks, we need to take this practice off the cushion into our world, into our neighborhoods, into our families, into our friends, into our workplaces, into work with our students and clients and colleagues. And again, what's interesting about that is that might that may sound like a doing or a shoulding or another thing to add to my already busy, crazy schedule. Um, and in my experience, the more I move in that direction, I f- and I'm feeling more and more pulled to uh, making my work make a difference in different communities, that movement isn't coming out of a place of shoulding, but it comes out of a place of joy, actually. It comes out of a place of abundance, comes out of a place of the the joy that arises when we share love, when we share generosity, when we share the practice, when we share whatever we can to contribute. I've been spending some time with uh, Tim Ryan recently, who's um, congressman from Ohio, um, who's just written a book called Mindful Nation. Uh, I think maybe the, the one and only person from Congress who's written a book on mindfulness. <laughs> Who knows, it may start a whole wave of mindful uh, uh, senators and reps. Um, and he's uh, from Ohio, he's, he's a congressman from Ohio, and um, he's been bringing mindfulness into schools there, um, having, having some clout uh, in his positions, able to sequest some funds and uh, bringing uh, mindful schools into some really depressed uh, old steel towns um, and having tremendous effect. He was terrified when he first brought it in because he, he just had no idea how it was going to be impacting the teachers. You know, the last thing he thought teachers would want is some stranger coming in saying, oh, I've got, I've got something, I've got a great thing for you to do. Here, I try this. But they were very receptive and it's had a tremendous impact on the schools and the teachers and the culture and now all the other school districts saying, hey, what about us? What about our funding? What about our mindfulness schools? And, and so these classrooms now have, a, instead of kids being sent to the corner for bad behavior, they have a peace corner. Where they, where, they, where they go and they, they, they're told to reflect and, and meditate and journal and uh, some profound, beautiful stories coming out of that. I don't have time to go into them. But. So to reflect on, on your life and, your, and your, your work and your teaching or whatever it is you do and, your, and, and, and to think, well, how, how, how could this vein, this seam of kindness weave itself into my life in ways known and unknown? It's a really useful reflection. How can we be more kind to the planet? A friend of mine up in the Northwest, he took a year where he chose to only go within a hundred kilometers of his house. And he could only do that um, through walking and, and biking and kayaking and, and I think public transport. And it transformed his life to not get on planes and be flying around and here we are all flying to Colorado. But um, So how would it look for you? you know, some people that means being vegetarian. Simply means really cutting their consumption of resources. So to conclude, I'd like to say one thing, which is actually two things. The first thing is to remember that this quality is innate within you. And, and, to, and, to, and as the Buddha said, whatever we frequently dwell and ponder upon, that the mind becomes, that the heart becomes. To turn the attention to kindness, to turn to look at where it flowers, to where it manifests, to where it's blocked. So we use the meta practice, we use the phrases as, as part of that intention. So instead of, well, my practice is a lot of rubbish and I'm no good and blah, blah, blah. Oh, and may I be happy. And may I be peaceful. And we transform the mind in a moment with an intentional phrase like that. So to, to, to weave the meta practice here, 
you know, as you're walking by, as you're passing people, as you're dining with people. Just a simple use of the phrases, and we'll be doing some more matter in the days to come. And the second thing is to be kind. To be kind to yourself while you're here, to be forgiving, to be accepting, to be accepting of your humanness and that of, of everybody here in the environment and the staff and in your life. I'll close with a quote from Martin Luther King. An individual has not started living until he can rise above the narrow confines of his individualistic concerns to the broader concerns of humanity. I believe that unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word in reality. I have decided to stick with love. Hate is too great a burden to bear. Thank you.